the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. I am Seth Leapson. We commemorate another anniversary this month. 232 years ago this week, George Washington, first in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of his countrymen, as he used to be taught, established disestablishment and equal rights of religion and conscience in America. He also gave us a roadmap of patriotism in that effort. What effort? A letter he sent to the Jewish synagogue in Rhode Island, Turo Synagogue. There's a lot in this short letter, and it needs revivification. In his four-paragraph letter, he wrote this, quote, The citizens of the United States of America have a right to applaud themselves for having given to mankind examples of an enlarged and liberal policy, a policy worthy of imitation. All possess alike liberty of conscience and immunities of citizenship. It is now no more that toleration is spoken of, as if it was by the indulgence of one class of people, that another enjoyed the exercise of their inherent natural rights. For happily, the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens in giving it, on all occasions, their effectual support. May the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants, while everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree, and there shall be none to make him afraid. May the Father of all mercies scatter light and not darkness in our paths and make us all in our several vacations useful here and in his own due time and way, everlastingly happy, close quote. There is so much in this short missive, and so much forgotten. Let us start with an observation regarding the different ways we treat religious and political freedom here in America. As you know, I, along with some scholars like Walter Burns, Hadley Arcus, Harry Jaffa, and a few others, have never believed our Constitution was agnostic, on our form of government, or what kind of political speech it was designed to protect. It was to protect, as the Constitution puts it and guarantees, a Republican form of government. This is why I never thought socialist or communist, any more than Nazi or fascist speech, deserves the same protection under the First Amendment that too many absolutists and relativists accept. Our founders were neutral on allowing what religious beliefs and practices our citizens could express, not on our form of government, a form of government that served to disestablish the church from the state. As Walter Burns put it, Thomas Jefferson wrote, It does me no injury for my neighbor to say there are 20 gods or no gods. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. In fact, he added, quote, difference of opinion is advantageous in religion, close quote advantageous in religion and, as he said elsewhere, harmless in physics and geometry. But he never said that 
or anything resembling it with respect to political speech. On that subject, and unlike modern liberals, he and the other founders were not relativists. As they saw, we might lack knowledge concerning the right way to care for souls, but we had firm knowledge concerning the fundamental principles of government. We knew that governments were instituted to secure rights and that they derived their just powers from the consent of the governed. If this were merely an opinion rather than a self-evident truth, if, that is, it were a matter on which men might rightly disagree, it would be impossible to protect the right of freedom of conscience. Harry Jaffa would see George Washington's letter and write the following. Never before in all human history had Jews ever been addressed in this way by a non-Jewish head of state. But Washington was explicit that they were equal in the civil and political rights because they were equal in those natural rights that had been set forth in both the Declaration of Independence and the Virginia Statute of Religious Liberty. As Washington demonstrated, these terms were intrinsically applicable to any and all Republican governments. In 1787, a version of the doctrine of religious liberty was incorporated along with a ban on slavery in the Northwest Ordinance, setting the pattern for the states to be formed therefrom. Of course, all of this would come to be true of other religions as well, particularly Catholics. Now, there's another part of this short letter that is ignored as well. All religious belief? All religious practice? Not exactly. Look at the roadmap George Washington provided, going back to his letter where he writes, quote, For happily, the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens in giving it, on all occasions, their effectual support, close quote. As Bill Bennett and I wrote in our book, The Fight of Our Lives, here was the test for religious freedom in America laid down by George Washington, that those who wished to practice their religion here were and are free to do so, so long as they demean themselves as good citizens by following the laws of the country and by supporting their country, by speaking clearly on behalf of it when asked to do so, or perhaps when doubts have arisen. The implied religious freedom contract was exactly this. Neither investigation nor bigotry would flow to or be felt by a religious minority in this country, so long as that religious minority followed the laws of this country, remained peaceful, and exhibited its effectual support for this country. In our non-judgmental modern temperament, we have nurtured the vine and fig trees. We have protected them. We have built rhetorical and legal garrisons around them, but we have forgotten and de-emphasized and battered down the second half of this test, the other side of this contract, the expectation that those dwelling under those trees, that those who desire to live under our protection would give this country their effectual support. That part, that side of the contract is not always fulfilled. We should not be embarrassed or reticent to point out that no country has historically or presently granted more rights and freedoms to more religions and different kinds of religious believers than the United States of America. The few historical caveats to religious practice here only serve to further illustrate this point. See, for example, the refusal to tolerate bigamy in the original Mormon church or drug use among certain Native American sects.
Once those religious communities brought themselves into compliance with the neutral laws of general applicability here, those religious communities were simply left alone, free to practice their religion, with, as George Washington put it, none to make them afraid. Walter Burns would conclude in thinking about this, quote, Thus, at our beginning, there was understood to be a difference between religious and other kinds of speech, which is why the First Amendment distinguishes them. With respect to religion, we were to be a house divided, and the Constitution was designed to keep us divided. With respect to the fundamental principles of government, we were to be a house united, and the Constitution was designed to keep us united. Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution, after all, does say, quote, the United States shall guarantee to every state in the Union a Republican form of government, close quote. What we have done with all that is inverted it. We protect all political speech regardless of the form of government it propounds, and we disregard the protections guaranteed to claims of faith and our overly conscientious protection and appeasement of statements, claims, and even actions that may inspire violence in the name of peace. We have done, in other words, with, say, radical Islam, what we have done with riots, taken the violent and simply pasted onto it the name peaceful, all while renouncing natural rights, all while changing the grounding of all our rights, nature, starting with children, especially when it comes to their most basic definition of nature or generation, which has the same root, which is to say changing their sex. Instead of allowing a decent respect for the opinions of mankind, instead of protecting the laws of nature and nature's God, the grounding of all our natural rights, we have taken up the mantle of being as gods. Are you aware today that American citizens of some prominence have been targeted for assassination in the name of the religion of peace? A religion nowhere mentioned in the obituaries of Ayman al-Zawahiri, the co-founder of al-Qaeda? Are you aware that Masih Alinejad, an American-Iranian fighting for women's rights in her country of birth, was targeted for assassination this month at her home in New York? Are you aware John Bolton was? Are you aware Mike Pompeo and Mark Esper have been? Are you aware that same government, in the name of that same religion, tried to bomb a restaurant in Washington, D.C. in 2011? John Bolton writes today that last Friday, quote, Salman Rushdie, long an Iranian target, was grievously wounded by an assailant immediately lauded by Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Iran's terrorist surrogate Hezbollah, as, quote, a Lebanese champion who had implemented the honorable fatwa promulgated by Ayatollah Rula Khomeini. Agence France Press reported that pro-regime Iranian media hailed the attack on Salman Rushdie and quoted Mohammad Marandi, an advisor to Iran's nuclear negotiators, saying, quote, I won't be shedding tears for a writer who spouts endless hatred and contempt for Muslims and Islam, close quote. And then he implied the attack was a U.S. false flag operation, of course. And it is this regime this administration continues to try to appease and offer money to and strike a deal with, hoping such a deal will keep them from manufacturing a nuclear weapon. A nuclear weapon they are already banned from creating as a signatory to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, 
the regime signed on to decades ago, a treaty they threatened to withdraw from but never have. So maybe this administration of dunces thinks a new piece of paper will keep them in line. I don't mean to fix and mix foreign policy and domestic history and constitutionalism here, but it does seem to me a little more George Washington and a little less relativism might just be the medicine we all need right about now to help concentrate the mind. Instead, we topple statues of George Washington here and build intellectual and rhetorical monuments to relativism, towers of Babel, where nothing is impossible and everything is permitted. Alan Bloom put it that value relativism takes one into very dark regions of the soul and very dangerous political experiments. Yes, but only if we can distinguish between dark and light, dangerous and safe, and that relativism has ruined as well. No polar, ops, no polar opposites. Or, as George Orwell put it, to repudiate morality while at the same time being able to lay claim to it. What disappears here? Freedom of conscience, the care of the soul, the protection of this country. What disappears with the abandonment of natural rights is pretty much everything, or at least everything good and decent, all while ironically laying claim to goodness and decency. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. For those of you looking for a remarkable investment opportunity with a great return for investors, check out my friends at Y-Refi. What they're offering is a fixed no-load interest rate up to 10.25% return for investors, all in a collateralized, secure portfolio. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm, as I say, run by really good people. They are investors who do well by doing good for others, and you can be part of that, too. Just check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, and then refy.com, investyrefi.com. Or you can give them a call at 855-316-3087. That's 855-316-3087. Doing a little historical thinking lately in the context of uh, a lot of things I've been hearing from many of you and others about um, getting past the primary that we just went through, what, two, two, two weeks ago. Getting over the bruises and getting over the intraparty disputes, getting over the internecine criticisms, because what I'm hearing from a lot is that it's um, still not so easily gotten over. Which I have to tell you, befuddles me. Befuddles me. And I am um, concerned about this because I'm concerned about politics generally. And I'm concerned about our maturity as political beings. I had a philosophy professor in college. He actually team taught a course with uh, Harry Jaffa. It was called Socrates or Nihilism. His name was Harry Newman. Prolific uh, philosophy professor, also a student of Leo Strauss's. He didn't do political philosophy so much as just real philosophy. 
and they team taught this course. Now, Harry Newman was a nihilist, self-described nihilist, kind of an interesting character, passed away a few years ago. And if you asked him how he was doing, this is the kind of, you'll like this, Bill. Whenever you asked him how he was doing, he would say 50-50. <laughs> you know, just, he's just that kind of guy. But once in a while, he wandered into the realm of political philosophy, and he said something really interesting that I'll never forget. He said, you know, people in America, this was in the 80s, people in America take politics more seriously than almost anything else. Those that get involved in it, they take it more seriously than almost anything else, even, you know, more seriously than, I don't know, sports teams or sporting competitions or alma mater and success, just as, 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 a, as a practice and as a hobby. They take it more seriously and feelings get bumped a little bit more than anything else. And he said, that's important to realize why. It's important to realize why. The reason why is that there's nothing really more important than politics because it goes to how we are going to govern ourselves and what could be more important than that. What could be more important than how you govern the society in which you live or how you will be governed in the society in which you live. It goes back really to Aristotle's, uh, I guess depending on the version you have, might be the first page of his politics, but certainly the first uh, book uh, in his politics, where he says the two institutions man creates, the first two institutions man creates in civil society are family and government, family and civil society, civics the kind of government you're going to operate in. So, of course, yes, we probably do take our families more seriously than we take our politics. But those are the two things. And outside of family matters, which, you know, don't often get displayed much in public, certainly certainly not the way our political disputes and fights and concerns do. Outside of that, there could be nothing more important. So in, in a way, it's right that we take politics so seriously. It's wrong to take something so serious, though, so casually and immaturely as we sometimes do, as we sometimes do. There is an infantilization in our politics and our political attitudes and our approach to politics I'm worried about. I've seen it rampant in the Democratic Party and on the left. This is why you will see liberals like uh, Marianne Williamson say things like, even though she ran as a Democrat, she'll end up saying things like, there's no one so mean as people in the Democratic Party. It bothers me when it happens in the Republican Party. And when we come back from this break, I'll give a little history lesson and a few explanations as to why, and maybe a roadmap to thinking about how to get past the bruises of the primary. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. As I said in the last segment, I've been doing a little bit of thinking and some historical context having to do with bruises from the primary season that ended about a fortnight ago. People who can't um, get past the fact that their candidate may not have won. And maybe it's even true of some of the candidates themselves. In Psalm 113, we're told how beautiful it is for brethren 
to sit in unity, which is where a party committed to principle or a set of principles like the Republican Party should always sit, it seems to me. It's another set of biblical passages that I worry about, however, and that's that a house divided against itself will not stand, cannot stand. Abraham Lincoln made great use of that phraseology and predicted that the house would not fall, but that it would be no longer divided. It would cease to be divided, becoming either all one thing, say slaveholding, or all another, non-slaveholding. It's worth remembering, even then, the Republican Party, though new, in 1860, held together. It was the Democratic Party that split between regular Democrats and what became known as the Southern Democratic Party or Southern Democrats. But it was the Republicans that not only maintained their unity, they held the union. The Democrats were about division. We weren't. They still are about division. We should not be. They're the ones that try to divide the country, after all. And today, we still know of Lincoln and make of him a hero. Nobody knows of John Breckinridge for a reason. Perhaps in our lifetime, the politician who most studied and made the most use of Lincoln imagery was Barry Goldwater, our own Barry Goldwater. And it dawned on me, you know, everyone remembers his 1964 presidential campaign and fight in the Republican Party to secure the nomination that year. We talk a lot about it here. Few remember his effort four years prior to that. But he gave a very important speech at the 1960 convention after withdrawing his name from the nomination, knowing he could not then get enough delegates to be Richard Nixon, who became the ultimate nominee. In those days, or in 1960 at least, Nixon was seen as the liberal Republican, and there was an early effort to nominate Goldwater the conservative instead in 1960. It didn't materialize into much, but a lot of the convention's conservatives in 1960 were unhappy, to put it no higher. In that speech, he's famous for saying and yelling, and perhaps you've heard him quoted, let's grow up, conservatives. A lot of people think that was the 1964 speech. It wasn't. It was 1960. And he'd said so as the losing candidate. Let's grow up, conservatives. But why he said that and leading up to what he said should be our roadmap and rule for any Republican after a primary, especially in Arizona. First, Goldwater said, whether your guy won or not, there's a far greater opponent. Quote, the Democrats who serve up nothing less than a blueprint for socialism. Close quote. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? We are condemned as a party now for speaking of the socialism of the Democrats today. But we've been doing it for years, and they've been getting worse for years. It's only now that it seems somehow wrong that we use the word socialism. Barry Goldwater used it freely. Conservatives used that word freely to describe the Democrats back in the days when they were enacting things like the Great Society and doubling down on things like the New Deal. But what he spoke about was how the party is bigger than one man or one race or one candidacy. And that to stay home just because your guy didn't make it is, in fact, to vote for that blueprint of socialism. He said that blueprint, that blueprint in the Democratic Party 
stood for three principles. Really interesting. Three things. One, the abandonment of the dignity of man. Two, the abandonment of our economic way of life. And three, a commitment to making America a second-rate power. I have to tell you, I'm blown away by his prescience, or at least the analogies to today. You could describe the Democratic Party that way today, except perhaps worse. When we come back from the other side of the break, I'll give you the rest of his message, and maybe, if we're lucky, some of the sound bites from that speech. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, portions of which are brought to you by Balance of Nature. I take it every single day. 100% pure, natural, potent plant power. 100% from the capsule to the ingredients, the equivalent of 10 servings of fruits and vegetables a day in one dose. You just take it once a day and you are good to go. Their blend of 16 whole fruits, fruits and 15 whole vegetables boosts your immunity, your health, your energy. You can access it, too, by going to balanceofnature.com. That's balanceofnature.com. Just make sure to use a discount code BALANCE. Talking about Barry Goldwater said in 1960 is perhaps the roadmap for people to get past their problems with their primary candidates having not won if they're unwilling to now work for the party of their maybe second favorite candidate or candidate in the Republican Party who did win that they didn't support. Maybe they even opposed that candidate seriously. Barry Goldwater in 1960, as the losing nominee to Richard Nixon, said, what the party is against, what the Democratic Party is against, and every good conservative should be for, is knowing the stakes of socialism versus freedom. And he instructed every delegate, whether they voted for him or not, to, in his words, put their shoulder to the wheel for Richard Nixon to stop the Democratic, his words, blueprint for socialism. That's when he said, let's grow up conservatives, and that it was childish to stay home because your primary candidate did not win. He then said, if our movement wants to take back the party, he meant the conservative movement, if our movement wants to take back the party in the country... I th- and I think we can, he said. Let's get to work and work harder. But in the meantime, he said, we have a Democratic Party to defeat. So I simply don't really understand why there are people here who, after this primary two weeks ago, can't get over, A, that there was a primary and not a coronation, and B, that someone they didn't want may have actually won. What was this, our first election ever? Are we new here? Folks, if you're bruised from your candidate not winning in this primary, you're not special. It's true of almost every campaign I've ever seen or been involved in or studied. Primaries can be tough and rough. McCain versus Bush wasn't tough in 2000. Reagan versus Bush, the whole voodoo economics fight in 1980 wasn't tough. Kemp versus Bush in 1988 wasn't tough. Reagan versus Ford wasn't hard in 76. Not to mention a million state races, too many to count the point. There's nothing novel, Hill. What the heck is new? If the phrase consent of the governed means anything, it means that we govern here by free elections and consent to the outcome. In turn, 
sometimes being the governed and sometimes being the governors, which is all derivative from our commitment to equality. We all get a say, we all get a vote, and we then live with the consequences. And then we move on or slug it out until the next election. What the heck more is there to say? Except maybe this. We're not the party and movement of snowflakes. Get over yourselves. We don't require safe spaces and therapy dolls. They do. Have we all been so opposed to leftism that we've adopted it? Or are we the party of martial virtues, rugged individualism, and for goodness sakes, Barry Goldwater? Yeah, campaigns are tough. Yeah, elections take a lot out of you. But primaries are about picking first and second best in order to get to a general election where you try to beat the most worst. And the Democrats in this race are the worst. There's simply no moral point I can think of, not one, that would put personalities over principles and personal grievances and preferences that nobody will care about, but will allow socialism to become our next governing ethos, whether it's in the race for Senate, whether it's in the race for Secretary of State, or any of the up-ballot or down-ballot races from governor to attorney general to state legislative, state legislative races, you name it. There's simply no moral point. There's simply no moral point. If you're talking about governance and you're talking about saving this republic or saving this state or saving and keeping safe your fellow citizens that would allow you to stay home and wallow over bruised feelings about a candidate in your party. Look, let me put it to you this way. We were talking with Hugh Holman yesterday. Ronald Reagan told you that your 80% friend should never be thought of as your 20% enemy. But turn it around for a moment. Turn it around for a moment. Why would you ever let your 80% enemy be your 20% friend? Why would you ever think about that when it comes to the most important things from security to sovereignty to economics to individual liberty to education to almost everything the government touches or can touch, even things you haven't even thought about that socialism wants to get? Involved in. Remember what Bill Buckley's definition of the new left is. They laughed when he said it. It's no longer a laughing matter. The new left is, 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 is represented by the government agent that wants to reach into the shower and adjust the temperature of it for you. It was a laugh line when he said it. It's eminently true now when you look at the kinds of things this government is doing and the governments are trying to do and the Democrats are trying to do. Sitting home, nurturing resentments, that's an election and a vote for socialism. Get over yourself and send these socialist social workers and busybodies back to the universities and the campuses where they belong. And probably, mostly, frankly, as students, not teachers. I'm Seth. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, and thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. You want to close out with a little Barry Goldwater from that speech? Let's do it. Yeah, let's hear the old man. Um, again, the roadmap um, and the way we should think post-primary. Here's Barry Goldwater, not 64, 60 after losing to Richard Nixon in the nomination fight for the presidency. We are conservatives. This great Republican Party is our historic house. This is our home. Now, some of us don't agree with every statement in the official platform of our party. But I might remind you that this is always true in every platform of an American political party. Both of the great historic parties represent a broad spectrum of views spread over a variety of individual and group convictions. Never are all of these views expressed totally and exclusively in the platform of either party. But we can be absolutely certain of one thing. In spite of the individual points of difference, the Republican platform deserves the support of every American over the blueprint for socialism presented by the Democrats. Over the years, however, we, we cut it out. is clear we what the historic the position of both the great parties has been. There has been a real difference overall in the two great parties. I might suggest to you that during the past 30 years, it is true beyond any doubt that those with more radical views have felt more at home in the Democrat Party, while those with strong historic beliefs have felt more at home in the Republican Party. The same condition prevails today. Yet, if each segment, each section of our great party were to insist on the complete and unqualified acceptance of its views, if each viewpoint were to be enforced by a Russian-type veto, the Republican Party would not long survive. There are tides of sentiment, tides of belief, that rise and fall inside the party. And under these changes in emphasis, the basic core convictions of the party endure from generation to generation. Now, radical Democrats who rightfully fear that the American people will reject their extreme program in November are watching this convention with eager hope that some split may occur in our party. I'm telling them now that no such split will take place. This very morning, the press carried the story that the nominee for the vice presidency on the Democrat ticket was speaking, hopefully, of a split in the Republican Party. Let him know that the conservatives of the Republican Party do not intend by any act of theirs to turn this country over by default to a party which has lost its belief in the dignity of man, a party which has no faith in our economic system, a party which has come to believe that the United States is a second-rate power. Thank you, Barry. The stakes are the same. Nothing has changed. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.